so much of it is just sitting in my hammock in the tribe, trying to remember words, trying to tell stories. Yeah, we were babies in their culture. I can't fend for myself or even speak. And so it's just a, such a slow process in order to, to get a, give these people a chance to hear the gospel. And so, so much of that feels insignificant. Yeah, but this quote, you, you listed those, these things are listed. And yeah, the whole, the whole quote is on my arm. The tattoo artist thought I was crazy because it's like <laughs> two paragraphs of text. Yeah. Um, but it just reminds me that, yeah, none of it's wasted and none of it, none of it is insignificant. It's a part of the process. And th- there's beauty in those things, even though it's, it's mundane, it's tedious and it's unappreciated. It'll, it'll never get applause anywhere. Yeah. Nobody cares that I'm sitting studying flashcards, but what it does is it gives us a platform it positions ourselves to get to share God's story with people who otherwise wouldn't be able to hear it. Yeah. I mean, man, I applaud you. There are over 7 billion people on planet earth. And it is my belief that God deserves all their worship. My guest today has gone to one of the most remote parts of the planet to make that very thing happen. Welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Jenkins, and I am so glad you've joined in today to be a part of raising up generations of Christian thinkers to understand and reach the world around them with the transformative message of the gospel. If you haven't subscribed to the show, do that now so you don't miss the amazing episodes coming up. Make sure to review the show on iTunes if you are an Apple user and no matter what you listen on. Share the show with your friends on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc., etc., so that more people can be part of the vision of all things all people or, at the very least, listen to interesting Christians talk about interesting things. And ultimately, that's why I do this show is whether you are a believer or a non-believer, I want you to hear about the things of the Bible, the things of the Christian world, from interesting Christians, from Christians who show love when they talk about the things of the Bible, who uh, show that there are things within our faith to be thought deeply about. And so that is why I do what I do. And my guest today is Jason Cheesegel. Now, if you're reading his last name, it is a different, difficult one to pronounce just by the spelling, but it is Cheesegel, and he is most certainly an interesting Christian. As you're going to hear, Jason and his wife, Lakin, and their three children live in a remote village of Papua New Guinea, where they are slowly translating the gospel into the native language. Jason and his wife, Lakin, are actually old friends of mine who, as you're going to hear when Jason and I start talking, from an early time in their relationship, they were talking about going and doing this very thing, and they are people of their word, and they are inspirations to me and so many other people who've watched them go on this journey. And this is a component of Christian missions, this type of mission, this type of ministry that people don't often get to hear about. You are going to be blown away by the lengths that they've gone to uh, geographically, uh, uh, educationally, time, energy uh, that, that, that they've gone to for these people in Papua New Guinea uh, to hear the gospel. So I'm excited for you to hear his story. I was excited just to hear it again. Jason and his family are, are a living 
uh, a compelling life of bravery and submission for God. And I can't wait for you to meet him through this interview. So let's, let's get to it. This is our Christian thinker for today. My friend, Jason Cheesejo. My next guest is a missionary to the country of Papua New Guinea uh, and an old friend of mine who uh, right now is ministering with his wife, Lakin, in the midst of 7 million people who speak more than 800 languages and live mostly in rural indigenous communities. He ministers with the organization Ethnos 360, known sometimes as New Tribes Missions. And isolated deep in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, near the Sepik River, lived the tribal people group, the Odii. Years ago, they were given an exciting taste of God's love, but never learned the full story. They waited for missionaries to return again and share the rest of God's redemptive plan. Early on in their life together, Jason and his wife, Lakin, were drawn to a life of missions and specifically the Wabuku region of Papua New Guinea. The Uriai people had heard the good news and received it in part, but before the deep roots of the kingdom could produce a mature church, the work among them faltered and in come Jason and Lakin. They embraced the irony and the power of resurrecting a tribal church by bringing the story of the resurrection back in its fullness. Joined with a team of like-minded missionaries, they began fulfilling their vision of church planting in February 2017. Uh, the area that they live not co- is not connected to the rest of the world, but by a series of winding rivers through miles of bush. Uh, and uh, Jason and Lakin live a fascinating life. An old friend of mine who, as long as I can remember, uh, felt a call with his wife to missions. And so I'm excited that he would give me some of his time here at home on furlough to be on the show. My guest today is my friend Jason Cheesegel one of the hardest names to pronounce uh, based <laughs> off phonetic spelling. But Jason, I'm so honored that you do this. Thank you for doing this, brother. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, man. And so uh, for those uh, just listening, uh, fulfilling the missionary uh, calling, Jason is uh, doing this interview in an, in an Eno uh, with, uh, <laughs> with, with, his, with his head of dreadlocks and all that. But um, when, we, when we knew each other in college, you did not have dreadlocks. I remember the first time I met you, you were wearing a Buffalo Sabres hat. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So do, do you, are you able to follow hockey much in uh, Papua New Guinea? A couple times I've FaceTimed my brother while he's watching. I made him put the phone right in front of the, uh, the TV. Yeah, our church bought a satellite internet, so I can, we have a little bit of connection out there, which, uh, yeah, I'll scratch the hockey itch a little bit, but not quite yeah. like when you're here. And you, so three, with three kids and the two oldest are boys, you just had uh, a, a new, a new baby. Um, yep. but I've seen the boys on Facebook playing hockey. Have you somehow these kids who've grown up a large majority in their life in the jungle, uh, of Papua <laughs> New Guinea, they love hockey too. I'm sure that there's a little bit of jungle hockey going on near and around, uh, Wabuku region. Oh yeah. 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 We, uh, with sticks we built a little hockey rink right in our yard i scraped all the grass off and we built a little hockey rink so we play with sticks and uh whatever ball we can find oh man and uh <laughs> and so so hundreds of years from now anthropologists are going to find record of <laughs> uh, of an, like an indigenous field hockey game that was not from papua new guinea at all and it's going to be because of you yep they'll be quite confused and i'm proud of that yeah but so so um you know for anybody listening who Maybe they're just not familiar with missions or um, 
you know, I, I guess, I guess even what, what sometimes we call like frontier missions, which you most certainly are a part of um, kind of, I mean, we're going to talk details, but give me just like a picture of what the last three, three or four years have been like for you and Lakin. And, and, and I know it's, I know that's a lot to ask because like I follow you on social media and you know, we've, we've messaged back and forth a little bit in the past few years, but it's, and it's been a wild ride, but like, could you got to give any, somebody listening, like what's a picture of life like for Jason and Lakin? Sure. We, uh, we take a plane about an hour and a half over nothing but jungle. We land in a different tribe that has an airstrip. We hop in a canoe for about two hours and then we uh, you just wind through the jungle. You see tropical birds, you see crocodiles, you see crazy things. You get to our tribe of Wabaku. It's small, doesn't look like much. There's only about 200 people in our tribe. And man, it was just a snapshot. Second day in the tribe of Wabaku, I got my culture notebook out and I'm listening to language and I'm trying to make observations culturally. And all these kids go running through the village, screaming and yelling. So I followed them. And when I got to where they had stopped, there was this, uh, there was a dead pig in, like with an arrow in his side and blood all over the place. And then from behind us, we heard this weeping, wailing sound. This old woman who was hunched over walking with a walking stick was crying and slowly made her way through the crowd. All the kids stopped talking and laughing. Just watched this really old lady. She leaned over the dead pig. She stuck her hands in the wound, the arrow wound, got blood all over her fingers and rubbed the blood slowly all over her face, just weeping and wailing the whole time. And then slowly just wander off back to where she came from. So that was, that was like jumping into the best day, day two. two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's immediately when I'm like, what do you write down? But I was just, I was, yeah, we knew we were in Kansas anymore. Yeah. They don't teach you that in the intercultural classes at Liberty. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like, you know, you're in a part of the world and like I travel in Asia quite a bit, but I've never been to that, that obviously I've never been that remote in Southeast Asia or anything. But like when I tell people about Asia and they're like, what's it like? Even, you know, I know you spend a lot of time in India. Like it, I tell people like even urban India is about as different from our life here in the States as you like anything you can think of, just flip it on its head. And then, you know, you, you even go past that. So what was like those first few months? Like how long did it take you to feel kind of like, I think I might understand a little bit what's going on around me. Oof. I still don't know if I feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first few months, it's actually, it's kind of the stages of culture shock, but when you first get into a new place, you tend to, you notice like all the different things, the different smells and foods and it's overwhelming, but then there's like this immediate appreciation or like, I don't know, affinity for what you're looking at. You notice all the, the nice, beautiful things first. That ha usually happens within the first few months. But then after that, after those first few months kind of sets in the, you notice all the negative things about yeah. these cultures. Mm -hmm. And you can, yeah, like for instance, in Papua New Guinea, what's really interesting is there, there are no orphans in Papua New Guinea. That's very different than India. Um, because of their tribal mentality, if, if a family member dies, you just adopt their kid. So when I first got there, I was like, that's beautiful. There's no orphans in this entire country. And it's true. You never saw a kid on the street alone running around mm -hmm. by himself. He was always taken care of, always had somebody to look after him. But then later on, the, the dark side of that, the other side of the coin is that when you ask anybody, this was confusing to me, when you ask anybody, how many kids do you have? They have trouble answering the question because they have a few of their own and then a few that they're kind of looking out for. And the way they look out for them isn't really all that well like these mm -hmm. these kids might have to bounce around to find food still so there's yeah. there's the positives and the negatives but yeah. 
yeah, there's, that's our job day by day is to try to understand the way the Wabaku people think, how they, how their worldview, how they view the world. And yeah. each day we get a little more clear on that. Yeah. So was there kind of like, was there any point where you almost started experiencing like almost grief, you know, to the point where you're like, man, we've, we've completely given up our, our old lives. And now, I mean, you almost feel like a newborn in this society, like a full grown newborn. Like did, was, how hard was it there once you started getting past the romance stage? Yeah. The, I think in hindsight, we can see God's grace in that because the days that were toughest for me, my wife seemed to be determined and encouraged and she was doing well and vice versa. The days that she was feeling like, man, why did we leave all this mm. for people who won't ever really appreciate us or appreciate what we left? Yeah. Um, when she's feeling that, those are the days I'm getting after and I'm feeling yeah. good. So we've seen God's grace in that where thankfully that hasn't often happened at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, there there are there are sad days when we're dreaming of Chick Fil A sauce and watching sports on TV. But yeah. now, for the most part, we we believe in why we're there and we're yeah. we're happy to do it. Yeah. Well, so then kind of walk walk us through though, because you say like we believe why we were there, and and I think missions in general is a romanticized notion in the American church, and and the reason I call it frontier missions, and I know you know, but like I mean you you're right. You're writing this language down. You're learning this language and you and your wife, Lakin and your team are translating the new Testament for these people. So, I mean, you are on the front line, but what was it that called you there? You know, I, like I told like I said, I can remember, you know, you and I worked together at a summer camp for at least like two or three years together. And I can remember you guys talking about missions and I can remember you guys talking about like frontier missions, but a lot of people talk about it and only a few people actually do it. So what was it that made you guys get on a plane and in a canoe and, and go do this? Yeah, it was, we took a trip to India with uh, Clayton King ministries and yeah. there's this missionary couple that hosted us. I won't say their names because this story might embarrass them a little bit. Yeah. They're friends but, of mine too. Yeah. I, yeah, I know you know them. Um, <laughs> We were, we were on a bus and something as, as usually happens on a mission trip, plans changed, something fell through. We had to like call an audible last minute. We were riding in a bus and it was like me and a bunch of other teenagers and this missionary couple that were hosting us, they were in this little bit of an argument. Like they were stressed out by the plan change and they're trying to figure out what to do. And they were kind of arguing. And we were like the, like the kids in the back of the car when mom and dad are fighting, kind of nervous and quiet and it was awkward. <laughs> But honestly, that I, that moment sticks out in my mind as a moment where God planted that seed in my heart, perhaps of, hey, these missionaries aren't the superhuman, impossible to attain spiritual level that I thought you was required to be a missionary. Yeah, They're ordinary people. They're just man, putting their yes on the table, just willing to serve. So if God can use people like that, who missionaries who argue, hey, mm -hmm. maybe he could use me too. Yeah. Goodness gracious. And so, yeah. so then, because um, like we, you got under you. You got your undergrad from Liberty, right? right? I mean, we. You know, I, I. I remember. I remember you being there. I, I just. I'm just trying to remember how that all finished out. But like, so how long was it? Because most missions agencies, even the the international sending ones, it's like it's fairly quick. It's a fairly quick process. You know, from from states to the ground. But with new tribes, ethanol 360, like. I remember them putting you through a gauntlet. Can you kind of like walk me through what that process was like? Because I don't think a lot of people understand how much training you've gone through. 
Sure. Yeah. We went to Liberty with the kind of the India model in our head. Let's, let's mm -hmm. set up an orphanage. Let's do that. Both my wife and I, before we were married. Um, but at Liberty, um, we heard a representative from Ethnos 360. He, and he just told a story about how he moved into this tribe. He learned a language that had never been learned. He created a written form of that language. He taught the people how to read and write that language. And then he was able to teach and translate through the entire scriptures, like chronologically, systematically, until he had this baby church. Then he discipled and built up these believers for years and years until he could entirely pass over leadership to a tribal church with tribal elders. And now he was back in the States and he was, he was kind of like a grandparent sending his kids off or his grandkids off this church, his church in the tribe was reproducing itself, mm -hmm. sending tribal missionaries to other tribes who hadn't had the gospel. So we heard that story at Liberty and that we thought, yeah, that's the story we want. Mm. So he told us about at the time was called new tribes, new tribes is training. They have a two year Bible Bible school where they do that very thing. They teach you chronologically through the scriptures in two years. Um, so we graduated that. And then you go to the, the missionary training center, which is in Missouri. And that's another two years of the more practical aspects of what it takes to be a, a bush, a frontier missionary, how to live on solar panels, basic yeah. medical care for yourselves and for the tribe, um, all the nuts and bolts of how to, how to live life out there. In addition to the, how to create a written form of a language, how to, how to do the literacy piece, um, the translation, yeah. all those principles, they, they hit you with that in the second two years. And then we stayed on for another year of specialized linguistics training. Um, the, the more how to analyze the patterns of a language. So you can really every missionary team just needs one linguist in order to crack the code of the language to create a written form of it. And then the whole team does all the discipleship and teaching and things like that. So yeah, it's like, it's a four year program with five, if you want to add the additional mm -hmm. linguistics bonus on it. Yeah. And then you went, I remember it was kind of like following along from home uh, in the comfort of my uh, American home, watching you, <laughs> watching you guys descend into the jungle. But then you went and it seemed like there was like a, an intermediary time where you were in country, but not with, not, not um, in the Uriya area. Right. Yeah. So when you new missionaries first get to Papua New Guinea, you have to go through about a year long orientation. And that's when you learn the national language. And that's when you demonstrate that you can, uh, you can understand a culture, a foreign culture. So the consultants, that's what I love about uh, New Tribes so much out in Papua New Guinea, is there's this rich family of consultants, all experienced church planners who help you through that process. They teach you again, how to learn the language when there's a, a real live person in front of you, what that mm -hmm. looks like. They guide you through that and then they test you in proficiency as you go to yeah. make sure that they're not sending missionaries into a tribe who don't even really speak the national language well. They disciple you through that process until you, when you like graduate out of orientation, then you can start looking for a tribe who's requested missionaries wow. to go plant a church. Yeah. Goodness gracious. So you go through that. I mean, I mean, you finish school and then you go through another five or six years of school and training sure. at this yeah. point, you're like, you know, 27 years old, <laughs> you've right. been chasing after a call to missions for almost a decade and you get in the canoe and I, you know, you and Lakin and the boys get into the canoe and you go. And then, like you said, the second day you have the experience with the pig and the blood and, <laughs> and all these things. And so you're a linguist an anthropologist, uh, you know, uh, a medic of sorts. I mean, right. everything. And then, then it all becomes reality. What, um, I mean, I guess the, the, 
the hardest thing then is what, what has been the difficulties of that? You know I mean? Obviously the, some of them are obvious. You don't know the language. You're still learning the language even still. Right. But I mean, culturally, what have been some of the most difficult obstacles you guys have been facing? Yeah, culturally, you mentioned in the intro that our tribe of Wabaku has had missionaries in the past. So there was a team of three families that moved in probably 10 or 15 years ago. Some of them learned the language. They began to teach, but they didn't get very far. Um, But what that did for the Wabaku people is it made them think that they're now all believers. So we've got this (laughs) syncretism that we're dealing with. And so one of the, this is kind of unique to Wabaku because most, most missionaries go to a brand new place where there hasn't been any influence at all. But since there was such an open door in Wabaku, they were begging, asking, hey, somebody come, please tell us the end of this story. Um, so that's why we were so eager to get in there. But yeah, the, the challenge is the syncretism. They, they mix their animism, all their animistic beliefs now sometimes have uh, biblical language, just mm. copy and paste it on top of it. Yeah. And that, that comes out in even their just regular daily activities. One, one thing we do with the tribe is called washing the river. There's a certain root that they have that if you, um, you collect a bunch of it and you smash it, like the, the pulp or the mm-hmm. juices that come out of it act like a poison for the fish. And so they'll get it. The whole tribe will gather a ton of it. They'll get about three or four canoes and uh, put them across the river to kind of block the river they'll pound this root in the canoes. And so you have this like white uh, milky uh, juice stuff, poison juice. And all at the same time, they'll dump the canoes. It poisons the fish and they, the fish look drunk. They just kind of like float to the top and then swim away a little bit. So it's super easy. You catch a ton of fish. Mm -hmm. Like each person will catch 30 to 50 fish. My kids actually, he was, Thatcher was five last time he did it. He could spear a fish like this. It makes it really easy to catch. But just before they do this, they, usually will like cast their spell. They call it mouse wind or they will cast a spell over top of the, the river to, to help the spirits, help them get fish. But now that they think they're believers, they'll, they will, Hey, they'll do a prayer also yeah. and then use their, their, so it's, they're just, it's syncretism. They just, yeah. they're mixing. It's both and not either or. So there, it yeah. shows up in things like that where they, they put Christian language or they'll, they'll even use Satan's. They've heard Satan's name. So they use Satan to describe, the already um, the spirits that they already understand. Yeah. 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 So, you know, for those listening uh, and and you, that was a pretty uh, amazing definition of syncretism, but like the idea of like, I mean, we have it in in the West, you know, and and especially in like Latin American cultures where you have like, um, like Santeria and Cuba or things like that, where like Catholicism is mixed with uh, like animistic religions, but like, can you, for, for somebody who doesn't understand what animism is, um, and it changes, I mean, all over the world, but like, what, what does the indigenous animistic religion look like in that region? For us, it's that evil spirit or spirits in general mm-hmm. control every aspect of everyday life. And these spirits are neither good nor bad necessarily. Um, they're just easily influenced. They're temperamental. And so that you have these rules or taboos. And if you violate a rule, like there's a certain frog that only the women can eat. And if a man eats it, he offends, he breaks the rule and he offends the spirit. And then the whole tribe or you specifically, and sometimes the whole tribe is then susceptible to attacks by these spirits. And usually these spirits kind of live in a a large tree or like a whirlpool in a river or certain landmarks that they believe the spirits hang out in. 
Um, so the, the game, if you can call it that, which you probably shouldn't, but it is to keep the spirits happy, keep them away from you, keep their attention, their gaze away from you so that things go well. So one of the interesting uh, applications of this, if you call it that too, is nobody gets sick or dies or no, nothing bad ever happens just by natural causes. Right. Every death is either because you offended a spirit and that spirit is angry and came to kill you or somebody paid the witch doctor yeah. to send the spirit after you. And so every time somebody dies, it's not only sad because that person is gone, but there's always, there's also that, that there's somebody to blame for that. And so there's that who offended the spirit. Oh, my, my brother died, but my sister didn't pay the full price for that tobacco she brought. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's my sister's fault that she's dead. And now she's accountable. So every death, every sickness, there's this who's to blame sort of thing, which just adds to the sadness and the darkness of it all. Yeah. So being a Christian missionary and like, from my understanding, like with, with organizations like Ethnos 360, Wycliffe and, and these frontier groups, is there, is it really difficult? Cause I'm sure that there's times where you just want to be a traditional missionary and minister and address like the immediate needs in front of you. And you say, no, I got to use the little broken language that I know to explain to you that that's incorrect. But it seems like there's such a priority on saying we have to, we have to learn the language so we can translate the word of God. Is that really difficult for you guys to navigate? It is. And even though we know the national language, which a few of the men in our tribe speak, we can't just go and teach in the national language. First of yeah. all, cause we don't want a church without any women in it or kids like only the, yeah, only that's the men. Good, that's such good missiology. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So we, we want, and the national language, even though some of them can speak it, it's not their heart language. It's not the language they grew up in their homes and heard their parents speak. And the national language is very limited. It's a trade language anyway. It has very limited vocabulary. So you get a lot of mileage out of a few words. So the, yeah. the, sort, the specific abstract concepts that are in the scriptures, it has to be in their tribal language. And that's, yeah, that's the language they all speak to each other. So mm -hmm. yeah, you don't want to hear the gospel for the first time. Mm -hmm in a foreign language from a, from a speaker who's not quite fluent. Like, no, you, you want to wait till we can speak so we can, till we are highly proficient in their language so that we don't, we don't leave anything to chance when, when we're sharing the gospel. And yeah, that's obviously the biggest challenge, but in some ways we love it because it, while it takes about three years to master a tribal language, that's three years of hanging out every night in these guys' houses, going hunting and fishing with them, learning, everything about them. We're friends with them. We spent yeah. a ton of time with them. And they're, so not only by, by the time we're ready to share the gospel, they're not only hearing it in their own heart language, but they're hearing it from a friend, which is mm -hmm. significant as well. Yeah. What, uh, what do they call you? Uh, which just means white man. <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever had any of them just look at you and, and just be like, white man, what are you doing here? Uh, yeah, there, there are a couple people who were, who were skeptical early on, even though they've had, they've had exposure to missionaries in the past. Um, they, they kind of assume there's some ulterior motives, usually motivated by money. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in our tribe, but we visited a different tribe once and I wanted to get, you know, video footage. So I was wearing one of those GoPro cameras with the, uh, like with a chest harness just to record everything I saw. And afterwards they told me like, Hey, w with that camera, like, we know that's the camera that you look into the ground and find the gold with. Like, did you find gold in our tribe? I was like, ooh, 
Oh, wow. No, this, uh, this must not be the updated GoPro because my <laughs> camera doesn't find gold. Right, yeah. So, I mean, is it, it has to be difficult at times then just like convincing them, like, hey, listen, we're here to tell you the end of the story. Like, just, just wait. You just wait. And I mean, is there anticipation amongst them to be like, hey, what, what, tell us, tell us what happened? Uh, yeah, there is. And we, we do little teasers to keep them interested in, and to keep them after it. But usually when we get asked that question, we say, hey, we need you to keep showing up, keep being patient and teaching us your language because the faster we learn it, the faster we can tell you. And we have, I, I have broken the rule once, the rule, but <laughs> yeah. uh, there was a guy who was dying and we knew he had liver cancer. And in the national language over a couple of days, I, I kind of slowly shared the gospel with him. Um, and a couple like his wife and or both of his wives and like his family were there and heard it. But I, I didn't get any indication sure. that there was really a true understanding. I don't, you never know, but yeah. so there are exceptions, but in general, the rule is you want them to understand it as clearly as possible, of course. So yeah. we try to go slowly and do it right. Yeah. Well, and like you just, you, sl- you just slipped in a huge cultural difference too. Um, and so for people listening, like just to give an illustration of how difficult it is to navigate, like you mentioned, he had, you know, plural marriage, like he had two wives, right. Or multiple yeah. wives. Um, is that, that's like in, so in missiology courses, um, I'm sure you guys did like, um, like Hebert's case studies and things like that. And, and is it difficult for you to not begin pointing out the cultural changes that sometimes are brought about by the gospel before the gospel is introduced, like the idea of plural marriage and, and whatnot? Um, yes and no. I would say yes, because there are, there are a few young, like promising friendly people that I want to see become elders one day in our future church. So I want to see them avoid making mistakes now. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, also because the reason we don't like jump ahead of the scriptures and point out like cultural errors that aren't consistent with the scriptures is because we don't want to be the authority of their life change. We want to wait until they hear God's word from the scriptures and let that be the thing that convicts and changes them. If it's, hey, don't have a second wife because the white man says don't have a second wife, that's only going to go so far. And that sets myself up as the authority. They listen to me. Mm -hmm. No, that's also part of the reason we are so uh, determined to have, like teach literacy in our tribe. Because after we teach God's word, we don't want them to go home and try to retell it and to get twisted a little bit. We want it written down in their language first of all, so that they don't forget it. Second of all, so that when they have a question, what, like, what did he say about what we're supposed to do about this? They don't come and ask me, they go right to God's word and they say, what does God's word say about it? Now, what does the white man think? What does God's word say? So that's why another reason we're so slow with it. And so determined to do it that way. That's difficult because like, we'll say it's because we're Westerners or Americans, but I think just in general, like we've experienced such drastic life change ourselves and we know just how transformative the gospel is. Um, I think that's got to be so difficult to just to be like, we, we have to work on the language. We have to master this language. And it has to add kind of a fire to your team and for you and Lakin to be like, we got to go home and continue to talk to these people and, and work on that. Uh, is there a sense of urgency amongst the team of just like, let's get to work. Let's do this. Every single day, that's what like gets us out of bed in the morning and keeps us up late is mm. ah, 
the thing that that stings the worst is in this language learning phase before we've reached fluency every single death is a is a dagger in the heart because not that we self-blame because we know this is part of the process and we believe in what we're doing but man like if i don't know we've had i think four or five deaths um yeah and it just hurts because we were so close these people were so close to hearing the gospel Mm -hmm. and now they're gone and they don't get they don't get that chance so yeah that that for certain will yeah, that motivates us more than anything is watching our Wabuku friends die before they get a chance to hear the gospel. That hurts. Yeah. I can remember reading a post had to have been like years ago and it was, I think it was one of the first, first deaths that you guys had experienced. And it was, um, I think a little girl, uh, uh-huh. you know, and, and you talked about the anguish amongst the community and just, I mean, there's a, a corporate mourning I think that goes on in, in tribes like that. Um, what is there? I mean, is there, uh, you know, we've talked about expectancy on their part, but is there kind of like a, them looking at you being like this message you keep t- telling us is going to change our lives? Like, you know, is, is there just like a, a burning in any of them saying like, please get to work. Like if like, I'll help you with the language if I need to, because I, I, I want to know what happens at the end of this story. Like, what are they looking at you saying? Yeah, there is some of that. But most of the tribe hasn't yet abandoned their animism. So they yeah. still deal with that grief in their own animistic way of we have to like they, they would instead of saying, oh, we got to hurry up and hear this message. It's still ooh, we have to buckle down and make sure we're remembering all of the taboos and mm-hmm. not offending the spirits and making sure these witch doctors can help us navigate which spirit was offended and why and who did yeah. it. So that's that's usually. Yeah, there there is a little bit of um like pushing us to to continue but for now this yeah it's not they're not we're not going to be preaching the gospel in a vacuum we're going to have to display this animism and so Mm -hmm. most of the time it's we got to pay more pay closer attention to to why the spirits are angry yeah and one most people wouldn't expect this but one of the more surprising facets of what you're doing that I'm sure provides difficulties is how some people at home and, and in the Western church, or even just like in the West in general view this kind of work, because like, I know you've gotten like nasty comments from like anthropologists and things like that who say, what are you doing? Changing these people's cultures, like leave them alone. Can you kind of walk me through like what experiences have you had like that? And, and, and how did the Lord lead you through those? Because I, I, I mean, I study anthropology and I remember just being like, man, that world of anthropology and like Western uh, cultural understandings thinks that you're doing an atrocity to these people. And we obviously believe the complete different. Yeah. And I tried to, I try to see what motivates these comments and there haven't been many. There's just been a few, Yeah, but I know it's their underlying. It's just a concern for tribal people and a want a desire to preserve their way of life, um, which I can appreciate. But, what I think that was most often understood by anthropologists who throw out an angry message. And but, but my favorite of which the latest one was just, I don't know, I, on Instagram, I got a message like he was, she was equally as angry that I was a white guy with dreadlocks as she yeah. was about what we were doing. But she said, I hope you and your family, family get COVID and die. Oh my <laughs> so, God. Oh, sorry. That's yeah. rough. But no, it's uh, they, what, what I think they failed to see with, from a, from a view from way back is the way they live, the way the Wabuku people live is not 
like you see in Pocahontas where they all they live in harmony with one another yeah. and with nature um there's this constant animosity and skepticism and mm-hmm. they're afraid and angry with one another because like i said every sickness every death is a result of somebody upsetting the apple cart making the village susceptible yeah. to the spirits so they always have grudges they're afraid of one another because at any moment I can go to the witch doctor and pay for him to kill you or make you sick or kill you or make your kids sick, kill your kid or make him sick. Yeah. So they're, they're always looking over their shoulder. They live in fear, mm-hmm. it's constant fear. It's like they live in occupied territory. Their spirits live right at the ed- edge of the vil- edge of the uh, jungle and they're surrounded and you never really know what makes the spirits angry or what mm-hmm. makes each other angry. So there's no harmony. There's no peace. And that's why they've asked us. We're not showing up because we, we just want to. We're showing up because they asked us, somebody please come give us God's talk in our language so we don't have to be afraid of the spirits any longer. And that's what I, I think the anthropologists don't, don't see is it's not, it's not utopia out there. Yeah. And we're going in there and making them wear suits and ties to church on a Sunday morning. It's, yeah. it's not like that at all. Yeah. It's anyone listening who wants to learn more about these types of things. I mean, there's a, there's a million books that, that, that uh, you can read and videos. Um, the, the, probably the best one that I've read is called spirit of the rainforest. Um, I don't know if you, if, if you're familiar with that, but one of the anthropologists goes in and starts dressing like the tribals, you know, and trying to relate and they look at him and they say, don't you understand? Like if we could afford more materials and fabrics to wear clothes like you we would like we don't like being cold and we like we said like when i said missions is somewhat romanticized is we like to think like oh these people are living at peace with nature and and it's like like you said no they're they're living at war with nature like they in some of these cultures they view nature as something to be appeased and so often every time there's a cyclone or an earthquake they think surely we've done something wrong and so it really is um maybe one of the clearest pictures of, of why we need to be expressing the gospel by any means necessary. And that's why, I mean, I've, I've always from afar just been so appreciative of what you and Lakin are doing because um, I mean, it's so desperately, so desperately needed. Um, and I mean, but yeah, it's anybody who's listening, like there's a whole world of education that, that us, us left here in the West can, can read and listen to. Um, but uh one of the, one of the, on a more lighter note, cause I've had, I've had you in dark territory for a while, so I'll take it easy on you. But so one thing that you and I have in common, our lives look about as different as they possibly can more, more often than not. But like, I know you're a big NT Wright fan and, um, and you listen to his show. And before we came on, we were talking about probably one of the coolest things that's happened to you in the last couple of years when he mentioned you on the show. Uh, what, what brought that about? Like you were in the States and you met him. What was that about? Yeah, we were home for a, for a break in the States, and my wife, as a birthday present, bought me tickets to go see him speak up in New York City. And we're down in Virginia, so I hopped on a train and went up, and there was like two speaking engagements over a couple of days. And, oh, man, I was out of place. It was like a – it was apparently a pastors-only conference, and <laughs> the dreadlocks and the tattoos, I, I didn't quite fit in. And they I thought you were like an Acts 29 pastor or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was the only guy without white hairs also. But yeah, so we listened to him speak. And then he's like, it's a smaller place. So anybody got a chance to like, go ask him a question. So I just got in line. And I don't know, I'm a millennial. So I just wanted a picture really. And I yeah. didn't have anything eloquent to say or some the questions I was hearing in front of me in line were intimidating. So I was like, whatever, <laughs> I'll go meet the dude. And uh, so I get up there and 
I handed the, the phone to the people behind me. It was like, hey, can you do this? And um, I just said, hey, uh, I think I made some joke that didn't land. But then I, uh, I said, my, I got a, like a tattoo of one of your quotes on my arm. And like he pulls his glasses out and he reads it. And then he like threw his head back with this yeah. belly laugh. And he's, he said he'd never seen it before. So then he gets his phone out and he takes a picture to send his wife. And no, we just had this really pleasant, fun interaction. And I talked to him about what we're doing a little bit. And then, yeah, I saw him speak the next day, but it was a bigger crowd. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, so it was, this was, I don't know, it was a few weeks or months even later after that, back in Papua New Guinea, my wife and I were uh, at home at night and listening to this podcast. And yeah, he mentioned meeting some missionary in New York City who was from the, I think he said the Philippines. Mm-hmm. He must have forgot the country we were in. And then he talked about this interaction and how it was meaningful to him and and it was such a, it was a blessing from God in such a strange way, because during that time, like in that season for us in PNG, we had just gotten back to the tribe and we were dealing with some like teammate conflict and it was that sort of stuff just wears on you so hard. And we were at a really low point and it was, we were actually just listening to the podcast to distract us from like the, mm. the language learning and everything else that was going on. And then to be, <laughs> to be mentioned by N.T. Wright in a podcast, it just, it was just, it lifted our spirits so much. And it was so exciting for me to, to get this. It was just a blessing. It was just a blessing mm-hmm. from the Lord and encouragement at a really needed time. And I even, I emailed him afterwards and I told him about it and we chat a little bit. I don't know. It was, it was yeah. great. It was like a highlight for me out there. Well, and it was to know that full story. Cause I remember seeing that picture and him throwing his head back and laughing. Like you think that's the man, that's the highlight. But then the moment where the Lord uses that you're in the jungle discouraged and hearing, I think you and I would probably agree. I mean, there's only a few guys other than him who can be mentioned as the foremost New Testament scholars alive today. And to hear him mention you um, had to have been hugely encouraging. And and the the quote on your arm is it's the one about uh, painting and preaching and singing and sewing. Yes. Yeah. 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 So for those listening, um, what Jason has on his arm is one of my favorite quotes too. And it, and it, like, like you said, it's from Tom Wright and it says the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not, this is, I don't think you have the whole thing on your arm, but you know, it's the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. And he goes on to say that nothing we do in this life will be wasted. And I almost get emotional reading that quote, talking to, you know, a friend of mine who's given his life to translating the gospel for people who've never heard it. But, um, obviously that quote's a big encouragement to you. You had it permanently etched onto your skin. So uh, what about, what about those words when you're in the jungle trying to learn a foreign, I mean, the most foreign of languages to tell people the end of the story. Why, why is it so encouraging? Yeah. Most of what we do is feel so tedious. I sit and study flashcards probably more than most humans do. (laughs) Even those in grad school and beyond, maybe not doc. I don't know, but, (laughs) <laughs> so much of it is just sitting in my hammock in the tribe, trying to remember words, trying to tell stories. Yeah, we, we're babies in their culture. I can't fend for myself or even speak. 
And so it's just a, such a slow process in order to, to get a, give these people a chance to hear the gospel. And so, so much of that feels insignificant. Yeah, but this quote, you, you listed those, these things are listed. And yeah, the whole, the whole quote is on my arm. The tattoo artist thought I was crazy because it's like <laughs> two paragraphs of text. Yeah. Um, but it just reminds me that, yeah, none of it's wasted and none of it, none of it is insignificant. It's a part of the process. And th- there's beauty in those things, even though it's, it's mundane, it's tedious and it's unappreciated. It'll, it'll never get applause anywhere. Yeah. Nobody cares that I'm sitting studying flashcards. But what it does is it gives us a platform. It positions ourselves to get to share God's story with people who otherwise wouldn't be able to hear it. Yeah. I mean, man, I applaud you, you know what I mean? And I know that's not, you know, um, and I think there's a lot of people, you know, we, I don't want to romanticize what you're doing. I don't want to make it sound like to somebody listening who might feel called to missions that this is all fun and games. Obviously if they've learned anything from hearing you and I talk is it's not, but it is worthy of applause. And the great thing about you and Lakin uh, is that I gen, as long as I've known you, it's never been about you. It's never been about Lakin. It's never been about being hardcore missionaries, you know, and, you know, arguing with anthropologists on Instagram and, and all these things, it's just been about making God more famous. And so, um, so man, as the, as we get ready to send you back, uh, you know, here, whenever you, your, your newborn gets a, a visa and a passport, um, which I know is a crazy thing to be waiting for, but yeah. how, how can we, how can just listeners be praying for you and, and supporting you as you guys get ready to go back to, to the Wabuku and your people? Yeah, thanks. Our our biggest prayer and concern and, and thing on the front of our minds all the time is, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of work to understand their language and their culture to, so that we can clearly present, share God's story with them. But always, of course, the biggest thing they'll remember or notice or see is the way we live our lives in front of them. And so our holiness, if we're not reflecting God's image in front of them, they have no reason to listen to the words we say. So our, our biggest prayer request all the time is that uh, we love each other well, we love them well, we stay patient, um, we reflect God's image in a way that makes them just need to know God's story so that mm-hmm. they, they can see the same thing happen in their own lives. And so, yeah, the passport stuff, all that's crazy, but we're, we're just, we want to make sure that we're, we're being faithful in our own lives so that we, we create interest, we create um, I don't know, a reason for them to listen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing it, man. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm proud to know you and I know, um, a lot of people who feel the same way. And, uh, to anyone who's listening, who, whether you know, Jason and Lakin at all, the first encounter you've had with them is listening to his voice on this show. I just encourage and, and just request that we would all just continue to pray for them as they, do their best to tell the end of the story to the Wabuku who are desperately waiting, whether they realize it or not. And so Jason, um, mm-hmm. honored to call you a friend, honored to call Lake and a friend. And I'm so glad that you gave me a little bit of your time, which is precious here in the States as you spend some time with family and friends and church members as you get ready to go back. So thank you, brother. Um, look forward to whether it's here or in heaven, just finding out the fruit of your labors. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate that. Yeah, man.